a card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School and Professor of Statistics. I am a co-host and collaborator of our show, Wharton Moneyball. I'm here today to break down the two-hour show and go over some of the key highlights. We had two guests this past week, wonderful guests. We had C.J. Wilson, who is a retired Major League Baseball pitcher, had a great career with the Texas Rangers and L.A. Angels, and he's now the owner of C.J. Wilson Car Racing. We talked with C.J. Wilson about that transition, and he had some very interesting observations to make about the transition from a professional sport baseball to another professional sport, which he actually had no experience in, car racing. And our second guest was the wonderful Ken Palm, Ken Pomeroy, who's a stats guru and creator of KenPalm.com and one of the top experts in basketball. And we talked about NCAA rankings and college basketball ratings. So let's begin with a discussion we had among the three of us who were in the studio this past week, Cade Massey, our host, myself, Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen, and we were talking about bunting in baseball. I was reading an article actually in 538, which was discussing some of the way baseball has been reacting some, to some of the shifts and various different uh, observations and, and the analytics side of baseball. And here's an interesting statistic that they, that they discussed. What do you think is the, the success rate, or what you might call the batting average, on a bunt for a base hit? There's nobody on, so there's no, no attempt to sacrifice. So it's a surfi- surprise bunt, in other words. Or, well, not, not really. Not necessarily. There are some, some who do it more so frequently. So we're coding the entire at-bat. If they ever try to bunt within an at-bat. That's right. So we're looking at any time they try to bunt, at any point in the at-bat when there's nobody on, so there's yeah. no point of a sacrifice. What do you think the success rate is? I was I was amazed by this. I'm, I'm giving it away, obviously. Uh, higher than the... What's the what's the 260 base? is the baseline batting average. So mm-hmm. about one in four attempts to get a hit are successful. 300. So 300, any... 350. It's about 450 to 500, depending what? on the What? It's unbelievable. The success rate at batting for a bunt is extremely high. Huh. And... And I think maybe this is cognitive bias, and one of the reasons why we don't see more of it, and this is my connection, is that because of the loss that's considered the feeling of regret when you bunt unsuccessfully for a hit, you take such shit for it because yeah. who's bunting for a base hit when there's nobody on what are you what are you doing and this is the conventional wisdom that this is, is an idiotic idea of course, and, you're giving and, and, up. Pro- and probably the people that are willing to accept that risk are the people that we already know are exceptionally good at that skill well, like something like Ichiro or something like there that are, yes. and, so, and so that's what pumps up the kind yeah, of like, success Gordon's rate tremendous. they're very fast yeah. they, they do it I mean for example uh, Car- uh, Carlos Pena who has shifted on immensely yeah. this guy bunts for a success- for successfully into the shift at, at rates over 500 and doesn't so, do but it they, that but much. they still shift on them that's they weird. still shift on them and they, and they don't shift they don't bunt and they bunt about one percent of the time into the shifts which actually hasn't changed in 10 years yeah even though the number of shifts has increased by a factor of 10 so it's i think that there's an opportunity out there yeah. it's probably what, I, bet, I, bet, I bet they do i bet that continues to evolve i mean yeah. we know that things move slowly and they adapt slowly and they're reluctant these big hitters are reluctant to turn into bunters but we're not at equilibrium yet 
So I think that was actually a wonderfully self-explanatory clip, but I'll just put a little bit of context in it. The observation is that uh, bunting for a base hit is far more successful than one would expect. As I asked that question, I posed it to my colleagues, and they were off by orders of magnitude. The, I guess, slugging percentage, if you will, that to put it on a, on a, on a fair scale for bunt, uh, bunting for a base hit is approximately, probably over 400, 450, and the on-base plus slugging is probably around 800, 850, maybe even higher, maybe 900. And that's a pretty darn high OPS. So bunting for a base hit is, um, if you can do it at rates of 450 to 500, is actually a quite a powerful maneuver, yet it just isn't done and it isn't increasing in frequency, even though the shifts are increasing with frequency. And there's probably good reason for that because a lot of the, the players aren't able to do it, but the ones who are able to do it, do it quite successfully and what I consider surprisingly successful. And lastly, I think that one of the reasons why it isn't done is that the what we call asymmetric loss. Now, not there's no asymmetric loss function in the reality of the game. And what I mean by asymmetric is the the disadvantage or the or the hurt that you experience by not being successful is asymmetric or overbalanced compared to the gain that you get when you are successful. And I think that that's cognitive asymmetric loss. In other words, the shit that you take from your friends, from the from the commentators, from the manager, from everyone around baseball for doing something that's iconoclastic when it doesn't succeed isn't matched asymmetrically by a value or a gain when you play the iconoclast and it actually succeeds. So the failure to succeed in an iconoclastic move tends to, the psychological failure tends to overweigh against the actual gain of doing something irregular when it does succeed. And that's probably why we, we don't see fourth down conversions attempted as, as frequently in football. And that's a, a great subject and we can talk about it at length at other time. So let's go to another clip. This is CJ Wilson talking about his transition um, and talking about some of the observations he makes about uh, driving a car really, really fast. About to make his professional debut in racing this weekend. What are you most concerned about going into the weekend? And is analytics going to help you with that in some way? Um, yeah, well, I was just, you know, getting to, being able to watch video with overlaid data of somebody else driving the track. You're able to see, okay, at this corner he's entering, you know, he's going 135 miles an hour, and then he slows down to 80 miles an hour. Okay, I just need to keep that in mind. And then, like, what's the technique for slowing down like that? Is it a gradual slowdown, or is it like an immediate slowdown deep into the corner? Right. So you're always looking for placement. It's a game of geometry, you know, really, because the car can only do so much. Mm -hmm. It's just like your streetcar. But when you turn right at a red light, you have to, the rules are that you have to stop and you have to, that you have to go, you know, and let somebody else pass. But if there's a green light and you just kind of yank it around the corner, there is a maximum velocity that you'll be able to achieve before you fly off and hit the, the center divider right. or go into yeah. cross traffic, right? So we don't have cross traffic, but we have walls and fences and, you know, pedestrians and all that type of stuff to worry about. Um, so in that sense, you know, you're trying to achieve the maximum that the car can achieve and you're trying to do it all the time, but you have to vary your technique slightly in order to keep the car underneath you. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, you end up, if you try to drive the exact same lap, the tires start getting crappier towards the end of the race. Mm -hmm. And then if the tires aren't there and you're, and you're thinking that they are there, then you won't make it. 
some interesting observations about driving a car. Obviously, the tires degrade along the way, and the car is no longer the car you had when you started. It's lighter. It's different traction, and that's the expertise that's involved in driving a car. CJ gave us some insight about what is uh, available analytically, and um, they take detailed measurements of the car around the track, and he talks about... Uh, how his competitors break a little bit faster, a little bit, a little bit slower, how they take t- turns a little bit sharper, and you can judge that. And if you're able to measure, you can get better. So let's listen to another clip um, from C.J. Wilson. Do you think you approach racing differently because of your experience with professional baseball than the other drivers um, do, for example? I think someone with my level of driving experience, like anybody with my level of driving experience that hasn't had some sort of background like I've had, is going to struggle to get to the point where all of us want to get to. I think I'm going to have a better advantage because I've just been building my tool set for longer. So it's like I just have more apps you know, to get things done. <laughs> I have... Um, just like being a major league player versus a minor league player. I, I, so the, the way I would look at it is everybody's a rookie, right? But the Japanese players that have been playing in Japan for a while, like they transition pretty well to major league baseball because they, they're used to major league baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, like where if you're a triple A guy or double A guy and you come up, you might have talent, but you might not be used to the rigors of the season or travel or whatever. Just on Monday, I landed at, at Heathrow Airport at 6 a.m. I went straight to the track. I hopped in a car I'd never driven, and track I'd never driven um, after you know, a ton of jet lag and three hours of sleep because there's a crying baby next to me the whole flight. And Jeez. I went out there and, and roasted pretty good laps, you know, in the car. And then I, uh, you know, got in a taxi and you know went to the airport and flew home. So Jeez. like, okay, uh, because that's how you have to play Major League Baseball. Sometimes you show up at 3 a.m. and you have to pitch that night. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just have to be able to consolidate your energy, conserve your energy, and then perform when you're not at your best. Everybody's going to have good and bad days. But if your variance and your amplitude is like a small degree, a small deviation versus a large one, then you're a better teammate, you're a better employee, you're a better boss, you know, and you're definitely a better driver. What a message. Let me recap that. What CJ is telling us is that despite the fact that there's really no intersecting set of skills that you'd conventionally think about when you compare and contrast car racing with Major League Baseball, he's saying to perform at the professional level, at the elite level, there actually is a set of tools that one brings from one sport to the other, and that is the ability to always be close to your peak performance to get in there day in and day out and be close to your best, what he describes as low amplitude variance. And if you have high amplitude variance and there are days when you're off, you're much off, you are not going to be successful. And he analogized that to a, a Japanese player coming over to the majors, transference of those skills. A college player can be analogized to having all that experience coming over and then making it in the majors as opposed to, say, a young high school player. And this is a theme we've actually talked about in Moneyball for some time. It's one of Rick Peterson's favorite themes. He talks about the ability of of a professional athlete to be ready to have a set of tricks and talents and what what CJ called apps to always be at his best, um, a discipline that is actually used as a role model for other players. And um, if we can think back of one of the controversial segments we had, which was uh, the Tim Tebow signing by the Mets, and he's just been playing in spring training, and he's just been reassigned back to the minors, didn't do very well in the major league level. And everybody mocked the Mets for hiring Tim Tebow, but Rick came to their defense, and the argument was that Tim brought a set of apps, a set of tools, which he could then instruct the other players in those sets of tools, mainly the discipline and the ability to get up and play every day 
and that's a professional athlete's set of tools, and they came from football, and they apply equally to baseball, and that's what we were hearing. Great segment, I think. And now let's go to our next guest, which is Cam Pomeroy, and he's going to be talking about RPI. Now, you wrote recently on Slate that the NCAA had invited you and a few other folks to come in and talk about new metrics. Are you optimistic that they're going to finally start moving on past the RPI? I mean, people have been complaining about it for a while. Yeah, I, I'm, I am optimistic. Uh, just, I mean, the mere fact that they invited people out to have this discussion, I think, is a good sign. Like, I don't think they'd do that just for, for fun or they didn't really. So, yeah, I mean, they invited a few of us out, you know, guys that uh, had developed rating systems. And, you know, we just had a kind of a really open and a discussion about, you know, what we think should be done, you know, what our rating systems were about philosophical stuff kind of dealing with the issue of you know a results-based system which is what the rpi is and what uh, other systems out there are like and then predictive type systems which is what my system's like and kind of the role that, that each might play um in the selection process so i think it's going to happen it's just there's so many people involved in the process you know there's the ncaa there's 351 division one coaches there's a lot of opinions out there and and trying to come up with something that will get buy-in from the coaching community, I think, and the athletic directors, it's going to take a little while. So I don't know if it's going to happen for this upcoming season, but certainly by the uh, 2019-2020 season, I think we will see uh, a new system implemented. Okay, well, by way of background, let me just explain what the RPI is. The RPI stands for Rating Percentage Index, and it's a measure of the strength of a schedule and performance of a team in that schedule. And it's used for selecting the teams for the NCAA tournament. And it's what Ken was calling results-oriented. So it heavily favors teams that did well in their games and weights them higher if they played formidable opponents. So it's a strength of schedule, results-oriented technique. And uh, what we're discussing is moving to something a little bit more outcome-based or, or predictive in the sense that it actually values the strength of the team and a little bit differently from how they actually perform. So if you're always performing, say, 20 games against the top 20 teams in the country and you just lose to them in every game, then you might have a horrible record and the RPI will not let you into the tournament. But by an outcomes or results or predictive-based system, you might actually nevertheless be a terrifically powerful team, maybe one of the top 64 in the country, and and be allotted or a slot in the tournament. So there's always a tension in uh, tournament construction between the 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 valuing of a result, a performance on the field, and valuing a, a statistical measure which predicts performance. Of course, it is sport. The purpose of sports is to win, and therefore there is definitely a sense of result that needs to drive the, the process. So that's kind of how it, it, it shakes out. And over the years, we we'll, might see some changes from the RPI and its current formulation into something different. So let's go to uh, another clip from Ken, this time about the NCAA tournament. Everyone is kind of focused on two simple things about the bracket. First round upsets and Final Four. Can we can we get you on record for first round upsets and Final Four? Sure. I mean, I think for, for like the inevitable 5-12 upset, I like Middle Tennessee All right. uh, over Minnesota. Okay. Um, for maybe a... a an upset going deeper into the bracket. I like whoever wins the Michigan-Oklahoma State game. Uh, it's a 7-10 game featuring two really high-powered offenses. I think whoever wins that game could you know, win a couple more games and possibly end up in the Elite Eight. So, uh, Okay, so you're short that's... Louisville. All right, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then what about here in a couple of weekends? Who are we going to be left with when we get to Phoenix? Well, I'm going to go with uh, two one seeds, Villanova and Gonzaga. 
mm-hmm. and then I'll go with Kentucky out of the South region, and my uh, my daughter course will be uh, Purdue with a four seed out in the Midwest. All right. Where does Purdue come from? They come from West Lafayette, Indiana. There they do. <laughs> there we Thank go. you. Very confusing. <laughs> now, what, what about their performance uh, that you're adding to that suggests that they have a chance to be a Final Four? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you there's a lot of logic to it. They're you know, 15th ranked in my system, so they're kind of an appropriate four seed. But uh, you know, that, that side of the bracket is pretty weak. I don't like Louisville. Kansas is the weakest one seed, and they're in that region. So there is an opening for yep. uh, kind of a, a lower seed to, to get in there and produce pretty balanced, good inside-outside balance. I like teams like that. So uh, – so that's the reason to go with them. Okay, so those are your pre-tournament forecasts. You should compare them against your own brackets and see how that worked out. I don't think those forecasts were all that great, but it's very hard to predict performance. And um, games are always toss-ups in many cases, and there are lots of upsets. Hasn't been a first-round upset ever in in the sense that, I don't mean first round, but the, the number one seed has never lost to a 16 seed. 538 claims that one is due based on their models. They've suggested there should have been at least three by this time since the tournament's um, beginnings, um, and there hasn't been any. My retort to them is I think their model is incorrect. I think that their forecasts are pushed slightly towards the center and that they don't give enough. um, They put too low a probability on a number one seed winning. It should be closer to 99% rather than what they have is probably more like 98%. In any case, we'll go to our final clip for today, which is a discussion we had amongst ourselves without any guest about the combine scores and college performance and the ability that those two characteristics can be used to combine to uh, produce an NFL forecast. Do we know anything about the combine? Does it really have any predictive value? Yeah, it has some predictive value. I mean, you know, speed is correlated with success. Sure, but, but we know that. I mean, it's just it, it's above over and beyond. It's overvalued. Speed is no, no, overvalued. no. The physical, I mean, almost anybody, I, I've done some research in this myself. Most people would agree that the sort of physical aspects that are measured at the combine become overvalued by the time the draft rolls around. So, so you know, if, if you want to sort of take, you know, all, all of your combine performance versus, you know, the other performance like college-based performance, the combine yep. is overvalued for most positions. So does it add – I mean, so we know that obviously it speed matters. Value. But does it add value that really matters? I mean, yeah, so I've watched it your does. college career. We have all kinds of information on you, and now I want to draft, and you have some great combine scores. Is is historically it does matter? That, yeah, like like so. So to put this in kind of a statistical term, you know, a model where you a, a, a model where you just built off NFL performance just based off college and excluded combine would not do as well as if you included both college and combine. But if you had to choose between combine or college as the one <laughs> thing to include, you'd choose college. Mm-hmm. Also, you can ask what does the draft value. And which of yeah. those? Does and, it... and the drafted, the draft is. Mu- I mean, the draft is much more predicted by com- combine relative compared to what NFL performance is predicted by combine. Right. So the so combine the, so the draft... is more related to draft. So, so that is kind of the you know. So, in other words, draft overvalues combine exactly. information. It's, exactly. it's predictive, but the draft yeah, overvalues right. it relative to college performance. Right. So, so that's, we're just we're just saying generally across all positions. Of course, yeah, it varies. Right. It varies by position. 
That's actually big stuff. I mean, we talked about it quickly, but the observation that Shane is uh, discussing is that if you try to predict NFL performance using just college performance, you would make poorer predictions than if you also had combine. Now, that's somewhat tautological. More data is better than less data. So I'll riff on that slightly and point out that what he means is you can do statistically significantly better. I don't even know if that's if the significant is actually substantively better, but you certainly can do better. And the final observation that, that we discussed there was the point that the draft really does value the combine because they believe it helps and it does help, but I think they overbelieve in it. And that produces a draft that's deterministic by combine and in a way that is undeserved. And that leaves the, the, essentially the inefficiency on the table. And, and Cade Massey is, of course, the expert in draft inefficiency. If the teams are overvaluing or valuing excessively the combine scores in their draft, then what happens is the higher predictions, higher draft positions are going to be overvalued relative to the lower ones. And then you can make a trade and end up with more picks um, than you had before and more picks is definitely better than than fewer picks, even with the, if those those picks are at lower levels because the difference is not that significant. And that's where you get these opportunities to draft and trade and build dynasties with statistical analysis. So that concludes our our broadcast, our, our podcast for this week. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and at the Apple Store under podcasts. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball Live on Wednesdays, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM's business radio channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. This is Adi Weiner. And until then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your stats. <laughs>